As a believer, reading God's Word is a critical part of your daily spiritual journey. And because it's so important, we've created a unique new resource to help you immerse yourself in biblical truth and open your eyes to all God's Word has for you. It's a free PDF download called The Word One-to-One that takes you on a guided journey through John chapter one. With biblical text and short commentary, each page provides insights that will strengthen your faith in an easy to read guided format. There's truly no other resource like this. Download your free PDF copy today at premierinsight.org forward slash resources. That's premierinsight.org forward slash resources. Ask N.T. Wright Anything podcast. Hello there, glad you could be with us for the show that brings you the thought and theology of N.T. Wright. Tom is, of course, Senior Research Fellow at Wycliffe Hall, Oxford University, a celebrated theologian and historian. And I'm Justin, Head of Apologetics and Theology for Premier Unbelievable. Today, you're going to hear a show first broadcast in 2019. In this edition of the show, Tom answered listener questions on how to have better conversations on sexuality in the church, cohabitation, whether the New Testament's understanding of homosexuality was different today to today's, and his thoughts on transgender following a letter he had written to the Times newspaper. If you want more from the show, of course, go to our website, premierunbelievable.com, register there, and we'll send you the ebook editions of some of our most popular big conversations, including Jordan Peterson versus Susan Blackmore on Making Sense of Life, and Bishop Robert Barron versus Cosmic Skeptic on Atheism versus Christianity. That's premierunbelievable.com. For now, on to today's show. As I say, first broadcast in 2019, so you'll understand that Tom and I don't deal with some of the more recent controversies in Anglican circles regarding the living in love and faith process and the prayers for same-sex couples recently issued by the bishops of the Church of England. However, I do hope you find the conversation we did have at the time helpful. We finally come to one that we got a lot of questions on. Uh, a very sensitive issue, obviously, uh, and one that, in a sense, is a powder keg in both the church and society these days. Uh, so uh, I fully understand that this is one you have to treat carefully um, and sensitively. But it is the issue of sexuality, transgender, Christian sexual ethics and so on. Um, I don't think it's, it's any secret that you hold a traditional view on this around um, sexual ethics. Often it's the only thing people often want to talk about sometimes, and you have a, a lot of other things to talk mm. about, obviously. Um, I suppose just leading out with a general question on this, um, how best do you think Christians can work alongside each other, deal with the contentious issues when they come up in the church? Yeah, th- this is a real problem because of the fact that, and many people have commented on this in many areas, Western society as a whole, over my lifetime, has found doing public discourse really hard. Mm. Al Gore wrote a book about this, um, I think it was The Decline of Discourse or something like that, um, about the way in which we used to know that you built up what you wanted to say from first principles which you could demonstrate to an argument which could then be debated. And Mm. somebody else says, no, there's a slippage in the logic there, etc., etc. And that's 
one of the great tasks of philosophy always has been to enable people, instead of yelling at each other and throwing things at each other or calling each other names, to say, look, no, 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 um, we can talk about this sensibly. There is this, there is that, there is the other. Now, how do we put that together? And if somebody else wants to say, no, you're doing it wrong, let's have that mm. discussion. And I have always, in whatever sphere of life I've been, um, been a let's have the discussion person. Mm-hmm. Um, and I bitterly regret the way in which now um, things get hugely polarized and people accuse one another of phobias or victimization or whatever it may be, mm. so that it becomes almost impossible to express a moral view. Mm. And that that's at the heart of it. And mm. I think the church ought to be constantly in the business of reminding people how to do moral discourse. Mm. And I would say that on any issue, whether it's investing in arms sales or, or whatever it is. Yeah. Um, and the church itself hasn't been good at it, tragically, because we are taught Paul insists on it, to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. And in that same passage, Romans 12, Paul goes on and says, if it's possible, so far as it lies with you, live at peace with all people. In other words, constantly be striving for ways in which you can say, even to people with whom you have major disagreements, please can we sit down, look each other in the face and actually talk about this. And we used to be much better at this than we are. And so it's that larger context, mm, which mm. Um, in America, that's very, very politicized at the moment. The culture wars have gone on dividing and it's worse mm. now than it's mm. ever been, I think. Um, but we have our own equivalent and other and in Europe and other parts of the world do as well. Um, so when you then say, what about sexual ethics? It's not just that this is special. It's actually, we're throwing that question into a world which already doesn't do discourse well. Yes, absolutely. I, I suppose part of that is because obviously it is at one level such a personal, mm, sure. it's not a, uh, an academic or dry subject. It's, it's one that impacts people sure. in, their, in their daily life. Um, but your plea is doing all that with the level of graciousness and compassion that is obviously required in anything that has a pastoral yes. dimension. Yes. We still and, need to be able to uh, talk about, about it. About 20 years ago, I was part of a group that was working under the radar, as it were, with um, people from very different points of view, mm. meeting together privately, church people, mm. um, to get to know one another yeah. without a sort of particular agenda that we were going to produce a report or sure. whatever, just to say, can we at least understand what we're talking mm-hmm. about here mm-hmm. and understand one another and why this matters? And some of that is still going on, thank God. I haven't been involved with it since I left my previous job, but um, uh, that that needs to go on. Mm. Um, but here's, the, here's the, the really tricky thing. The fact that we say, let's sit down and talk about it, doesn't mean that actually we're all agreed and it's only a matter of dotting a few I's right. and crossing a few T's. It's like John Henry Newman once said that there are two types of disagreement. There's disagreements about words and disagreement about things that often you and I will in fact agree, but you use a particular word mm. which I don't like and I mm. use a word that you don't uh, mm. get what mm. I'm meaning. And when we tease that out, we say, oh, I see, we're mm. really in agreement. Mm. Fine. But there are other things which when we cash them out, we really are saying, no, this actually is a deal breaker. And then the question is, how do you say what is a deal breaker within the church? And obviously within the early church, there were lots of things Mm. that some people thought were deal breakers Mm. that Mm. others didn't. Mm. And that's, we're on the same page, except with a different set of issues. Our our questions for today. And 
I suppose a speculative question inevitably, but do you, it seems like these, this is the, the issue, sexuality that, that particularly the Anglican church and many others is in a sense fracturing over. And do you, do you think there will be a sort of an ultimate kind of split in, in, in some significant sense? It's very difficult because it varies enormously from part to part of the world. And of course there's, this is cue for, um, a lot of implicit racism, you know, that, that um, mm. uh, if it's African bishops who are saying no to the innovations, then one sometimes gets the impression from some people that, oh, well, they're only Africans, what would they know? And you'd, and, yeah. a, let's not go there, excuse yeah. me. Um, but that can work in the other direction mm. as well. And, and so that there's all sorts of things which throws dust in the eyes and yeah. makes it harder because immediately the temperature gets up. How dare you say that? Mm-hmm. And, and I've, I've seen that at, uh, close up, but also at a distance. And it's, it's not a pretty sight. Um, and, and I think part of the problem there, I'm not sure how to say this really, um, p- part of the problem when people are dealing with um, issues like that is that the different cultures in which we live are so very different. I remember at Lambeth, in 2008, the Lambeth Conference, the meeting of Anglican bishops, one of my colleagues hearing a conversation between a Sudanese bishop and an American bishop and just seeing these two Mm. totally different Mm. cultural contexts Mm. and both of them trying to be responsible and sensitive in their context and just saying, how do we we have that conversation? We'll we'll get to one or two of the questions mm, sure. on on some of the the con- really contentious issues in a moment Let, let's start though in um in a sense with something somewhat simpler um <laughs> uh not necessarily uh, emily in london wants to know um when it comes to say a, a heterosexual christian um who is perhaps a new christian but mm-hmm. in say has just come into the church um but is still in a cohabiting relationship mm-hmm. um and ha- what what would your counsel be to that person in that church um uh, if you take a sort of traditional view on on christian sexual ethics should they immediately abstain from any sexual relations um live apart what will the impact be then on that relationship Mm -hmm. they've had is that too much to ask are we simply to ask for a sort of a gradual changing Mm -hmm. of of priorities and behavior and so on yeah that's that's a a question which i know a lot of people face um and i i remember from 30 years ago hearing a talk that john stott did as part of a university mission in cambridge which i thought was really sensitive addressing exactly this issue and people expected stott an old traditional bachelor you know (laughs) that he wouldn't be talking about so obviously he'd met exactly this Mm. situation as a pastor again and again and again pastor of a busy london Mm. church you Mm. would this would be in the in the 1970s or 80s um and his counsel was so somebody comes to faith in christ this somebody is in a cohabiting relation with somebody else what to do some rigorists might say oh well you've got to leave at once get out and Mm. he said no he said you are already bonded with this person and now you need pastoral help to see how the the bondedness that you two now have can best be part of God's future for you both from here on. And with that pastoral help, it might be that the other partner would say, actually, what you've got with this Jesus stuff is so amazing. I want it too, and let's work on that. Mm. Or they might say, huh, if that's the way you're going, I'm not having any of that. And that might precipitate a Mm. change in the relationship. And in the meantime, the pastoral sensitivity, you're not starting from cold, you're not starting from scratch. Um, At the same time, 
I would say this. Our culture is absolutely soaked to the bone in Aphrodite worship. We what are do you just, mean by that? There is the goddess of erotic love, right. um, uh, Eros, uh, the, the, the little boy in Piccadilly mm, Circus, mm. but, but the, the ancient goddess Aphrodite, um, who is uh, a very demanding goddess. She says... Oh, this is what you want erotically. This is, mm. you know, the, the, the pornography industry, um, mm. just massive now. That's the modern incarnation of Aphrodite worship. Well, it's part of it. It's part mm. of it. But, but the lie at the heart of it is that it's irresistible mm. and that to resist it is bad for you. Right. Um, and those of us who've been fortunate enough to know people in um, enclosed monastic or, or conventual communities mm. will know that, yes, there are problems there. There are pastoral problems you have to deal with. But actually, these are some of the most fulfilled, happy, wise, whole people that you could ever wish to meet. And actually, I think I want to say the same about Jesus mm. Mm. <laughs> and Paul. Yeah. Um, and so I think the idea that life without regular active sexual relationships is not worth living, mm. that's a modern lie. So... If it was the pastoral thing to say to this couple, well, maybe while this turbulence is going on, you might find it better actually, simply you maybe still live in the same house mm. or whatever, but you might find it okay to refrain mm. while we sort this out. Mm. But I would emphasize the pastoral thing. Yes. Pastoral business is never about somebody like me on a podcast saying do this yes. and all will be well yes. it's always about working with an actual yes. pastor on the ground don't who don't, don't try and be pastored by a podcast host, no, no, that's it, for exactly, sure exactly um I, yeah i suppose though the overall sort of where you would see that the momentum going though is towards that that ideal if you yes, like yes. of of, of well, sexual love being expressed within a within, within a, a marriage. marriage and uh, i mean when i was younger people never talked about this stuff but such as i've read and i'm not an expert on this is to do with the the the, the chemicals that are released mm. um during sexual activity which are designed to bond you with mm. this person um so that it is almost like um, in, in, in Midsummer Night's Dream, the sprinkling of fairy dust, whatever, so that when you wake up, this will be the person you want to live with, the person you're happy with. Do you, would um, you even tie that back to the sort of, you know, Jesus saying one flesh, you know? Absolutely. Yeah. I think the one fleshness, we have tended, I think I have tended in, in thinking about that over the years, to think of it almost as a legalistic thing. Well, mm. you're now one flesh, there yeah. it is. But actually, as C.S. Lewis says somewhere, that when the man lies with the woman, let's just keep it heterosexual for the moment, um, then there is a bond set up between them. Um, Lewis makes that a sort of a mystical, almost supernatural thing. I, I would say it's actually first and foremost chemical. Um, right. and, and there is something about that, about the bondedness, which um, isn't just about God said so, you know, those whom God has joined together, let no one put us under, as you say in the mm. wedding service, or we say in the wedding service. It, it's not just God's law says you mustn't do it. It's actually when you pull apart a couple who've been living together, it is a tearing of flesh. Um, it's, it's, a, it's a, a trauma which is much more than just who has which of the CDs. Let, let's um, open up the can of worms now. Um, Francis asks, um, is the homosexuality we understand today the same as that which is condemned in the Old and New Testaments? <laughs> 
for a start, Old and New Testaments are interestingly different in mm. that uh, it's very contentious as to which of the famous passages in the Old Testament say what precisely about sexual relations. Mm. I mean, for, for instance, the, the question of Sodom um, yeah. uh, in Genesis, let's just leave that to one side. It does seem that the prohibition in Leviticus 18 about lying with a man mm. as you would lie with a woman, that is something which is then picked up explicitly in the language of First Corinthians 6, etc. Um, so th- there is a, a similarity there, but we're talking about documents produced over mm. millennia, mm. And so we have to be very careful. But more particularly, we have to be very careful about any word ending in I-T-Y, as in iti, homosexuality. It's rather like words ending in ISM, Judaism, Buddhism, Mm. etc. Isms were invented in the 19th century. You know, when the British missionaries went to India and told the Indians that they, the Indians, had a religion called Hinduism, the Indians were surprised. <laughs> they didn't know. Well, we didn't that, know that was that the they name. Could, right. Quite, yes, quite. Yes. This is a 19th century construct. Right. Okay. In the same way, homosexuality is a 19th century construct. Right. And in particular, it's a modernist construct. It's an essentializing construct which comes out of modernism rather than Postmodernism. Okay. Postmodernism now, which I think is where some of the leading edge of those movements is now, mm. um, doesn't say, this is my essence. It says, oh, today I feel like being this sort of a person or that sort of a person. And it's, it's deep. Fluid in it's, that it's much more fluid. And, and I think that's where the leading edge is, which is ironic because in the church, often people talk as though we were all signed up to an essentialized right. view. Mm. But actually, essentializing is not where the culture is, mm. is at now. I think we're, we're behind on that. But then here's the, here's the mm. key thing. Mm. I, I'm an ancient historian first and foremost. When I approach these texts, I, I read Greco-Roman sources and I try and understand how the New Testament would have impacted in that world. One of the poets that I really enjoyed reading when I was at school is the rather scurrilous Latin satirist Juvenal. Um, no doubt, as many schoolboys did, you enjoy Juvenal for all the wrong reasons, <laughs> and you um, you have an expurgated text in, in, in the back of the you classroom. have an expurgated yes. text in class, but then you know where to find in the library the right. thing with all these strange Latin words. You look them up, and oh my goodness, was that what they got up to? And Juvenal, in Satire Nine, describes very clearly. Uh, what you might call the gay scene in Rome. Mm. And it isn't a matter, as people have often said, of um, powerful men exploiting boy slaves, etc. That happens as well, of course, Mm -hmm. but it's also very much a matter of some long-term partnerships and also a lot of people um, who Juvenal describes in lavish detail who choose what Juvenal describes as the female role in homosexual Mm. behavior. Um, In other words, there's nothing that we know about actual behavior that they didn't know. And Um, and so just to square that circle, very often the contention is among some people that, well, what Paul describes and prohibits in certain of his letters uh, in terms of um, that behavior, well, he's referencing some kind of, as you say, pederasty, exploitative exploitative temple, prostitution, whatever. Well, that's all completely different to Um, what what we consider to be loving, faithful. that That is a view that people have taken. If you read not only 
the text I've referred to, Juvenal Satires. If you read Plutarch's treatise on love, Plutarch is a near contemporary of Paul. If you read Plato's Symposium, which is a discussion of love, okay, that's written um, a few hundred years before Paul, but Plato is one of the go-to authors. Um, you know, Homer is the Old Testament for Greek mm. civilization. Plato is the New Testament. And if you look at the school curricula of the time, Plato is, is widely read. Right. And the Symposium has all kinds of relations, including long-term faithful stable partnerships. Um, so the, the, the rather trivial suggestion that, oh, this was all exploitative thing, and now we have something quite different. Historically, that won't work. That, now, that let, let, let me say, um, I would expect that many historians of many persuasions would agree with me on this, and that doesn't then foreclose the issue as mm. to what you do with it, right. um, because uh, in many church circles, people will say, oh, well, at that point, we're just going to disagree with Paul. Um, mm. And fine, that raises quite other issues. Mm. And then you have to start talking about the integration of what Paul says in these very small passages, and they are small passages, mm. obviously, with all the other things he's doing. And mm. then it's about creation mm. and about the redemption of creation. Um, and that, that's what's really at the heart of it. Many more issues we could unpack, but we'll leave them for now um, and go, move it into a, a different can of worms. <laughs> um, the, I had a number of different questions on this actually um, come in uh, from different people like Carol in Arizona, for instance, the question of transgender. And um, that, that in a sense, if, if the sexuality issue has kind of come on a pace, I, I think the transgender issue has, has more than doubled the, mm -hmm. you know, in terms of the rapid chain, changes in no, nobody society saw this coming, and culture. I, think. Yeah, yeah. I suspect a lot of that's to do with the, the sort of technological age we live in and the, the way things can spread so incredibly fast these days. But rather than comment on specific pastoral issues that some mm -hmm. people have, have, have written in about, which obviously you're not in a position to really speak into, I did notice that you, um, you did sort of put your head above the parapet, let's say, in the Times a year or two ago, um, commenting on a couple of articles and issues that had come up there. And this was the letter you wrote, and I'd just be interested in you expanding on your comments on this. Um, perhaps I should say one of the articles was by that I was commenting on was by um, uh, Hugo Rifkin, yes. who's son of former Foreign Secretary Malcolm Rifkin. And Hugo, I think, is is basically a secularist who's just right. observing yeah. a scene rather than taking a particular moral so they, line. These were just sort of cult, cultural yeah, sort of analysis exactly, type exactly. pieces. In fact, in, in uh, whether they filled it in for you or you did, it's mentioned here anyway. Okay. It says, sir, the article's by Claire Foges, I think. Uh, yeah. uh, uh, gender fluid world is muddling young minds and hugo rifkind social media is making gender meaningless and the letters about children wanting to be pandas dogs or mermaids show that the confusion about gender identity is a modern and now internet fueled form of the ancient philosophy of gnosticism the gnostic one who knows has discovered the secret of quote-unquote who i really am behind the deceptive outward appearance in rifkin's apt phrase the ungainly boring fleshly one this involves denying the goodness or even the ultimate reality of the natural world nature however tends to strike back with the likely victims in this case being vulnerable and impressionable youngsters who as confused adults will pay the price for their elders fashionable fantasies you wrote so um yeah expand that one a little bit yes. i mean you've probably got a little bit of backlash i'm assuming on this um, this letter uh, i did a little bit i actually got a bit of whatever the opposite of backlash is because um the washington post phoned me up and asked if i'd like to write a whole op-ed piece oh, right. about it okay. and i courteously declined their invitation <laughs> i said you know what i've written i've written um i mean what struck me particularly again as an ancient historian 
was with that article by Rifkind when he describes people not being satisfied with this boring fleshly body that they've got and looking inside for a different identity. I thought, I I know that stuff, Mm. that there's a lot of that in the second and third centuries. And it's very interesting, the rise of Gnosticism in roughly the middle of the second century onwards then chimes in with the fact that Gnosticism has been one of the default American religions, particularly for the last 200 years. Harold Bloom says this in a famous Mm. book. In other words, and you find it in Jung and other psychologists, um, the idea that who I really am is what I discover when I look deep inside my heart. And then I discover. And then if I look at my body, oh dear, this doesn't quite match. Mm. Well, we've got to do something about it. Mm. And the early Christians were quite clear on two fronts. First, the created order is good and to be redeemed, not to be rejected. Gnosticism is ultimately dualistic. Second, with Jeremiah, the heart is deceitful above all things and who can fathom it. And Jesus says it's out of the heart that there proceed. And then he gives a rather... A worrying list of mm. things in Mark chapter 7 and he implies that these are the things that defile us and the problem with Gnosticism is finding my inner identity and this is the stuff of many many movies novels mm. plays mm. etc mm. who I really am yes. now I have known as we most of us have some people who have had transgender issues shall we say and again I would stress this is not something for somebody like me to come down from a great height and say, you're all silly, go away, blah, 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 blah. Mm. These are genuine dear people who one loves and wants to help and affirm and so on. However, as with some other styles of behavior, if I as a pastor see somebody doing something which I deeply and with care believe is really destructive in some way, I need to say something about that. And particularly, I worry about children. You know, I have grandchildren mm-hmm. now. I worry about them being in a world where somebody might ask you know, a seven-year-old, um, do you want to be a boy or a girl? As mm-hmm. though this is, you know, and the whole, the whole rhetoric of saying, oh, you were assigned that gender at birth, but actually yes. you may be somebody else. This and idea this, that, that gender is a, so, a purely socially constructed phenomenon. Socially so constructed on. phenomenon which can be then wished on you by people other than mm. yours. That's part of what Gnosticism is responding to, is the imperial power of a regime that tells mm. you who mm. you are. And Gnosticism is saying, no, we're different from that. Right. It's, it's a protest movement. Mm. But it goes inside and protests against its own embodiment. Mm. Um, it, it's that, an interesting one because yeah. this stuff is all moving so fast anyway. Sure. I think even in the secular postmodern world, people are coming up against certain uh, consequences, let's say, well, it's happening of, in the, of sport, that. Sporting in the sporting world, right world yes, yep, where, yep, where yep. certain female athletes are saying, hang on, yep. I, I'm all for transgender people, but it doesn't make sense to have no, uh, no. Uh, people who are physically male competing quite, against quite, women. Quite. And, and indeed, the so-called, you know, trans-exclusionary radical feminists, I think, is now the, yes, the term yes, TERFs. Yes. Um, yes, the yes. tradition, you know, the, the, the first wave of feminism, you know, Jermaine Greer and yep, so on, yep, who, are, yep. who are actually Same. saying, well, I've got a problem. Yep, yep, um, yep, and, yep, and suddenly yep. you've got people who you might expect to be bedfellows actually yes, at yes, yes, each yes. other. Yes, and, and I just think that, that that demonstrates the confusion that results from saying that my identity is constituted by some feelings within me about maleness, femaleness, um, both identity and desire. And uh, 
the, it's partly the residual Platonism of Western culture that that we we think in terms of the physical being irrelevant, and there's mm-hmm. a spiritual reality which is different. And the the Bible is very keen on the physical stuff. So when God said He created the male and female, and He said it was good, there's there's a givenness in your opinion the, the, to that identity. Yeah, and that interestingly, in the New Testament, I know that in Galatians three twenty eight it says neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, no male and female. That's because you are all one in Christ. Mm-hmm. But all the rest of the time, Paul is very much aware that he is a Jew, that other people are not, and we have to navigate that. Mm. And in the same way, he is male, some people are female, and we have to navigate that. Mm. The, the fact of being all one in Christ doesn't mean... That we that, deny any That we deny whatsoever. any differences, yeah. exactly. Fascinating stuff. Um, the time is up already. <laughs> and uh, thank you for, for delving into what is often, obviously, a very, very, you know, uh, obviously explosive sort of sure. area to, to, to raise any sorts of thoughts sure. on. But... Um, <laughs> Appreciate your your openness to doing that, Tom, on today's edition of uh, the show. Uh, This is the Ask NT Write Anything podcast, and you can ask your own questions too. Uh, I'll make sure to leave you the ways to do that towards the end of today's programme. But for now, thank you very much, Tom. Thank you very much. I hope you found today's replay show helpful, and you can find more, get our newsletter, and support us at premierunbelievable.com. The link is with today's show. If you do like the show, do please leave us a rating and a review on your podcast provider. It helps others to discover Tom's thought and theology. And if you want more, again, all of the bonus content and much more available from the website, premierunbelievable.com. For now, God bless and see you next time.